Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. <laughs> Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for March 17th, 2011. Um, for those that are new to the show, the Vegas Gang is a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. Uh, I'm going to go around the virtual table and introduce my co-host. We've got Mr. Jeff Simpson, author of the fabulous Simpson on Vegas column over on Two Way Hard Three. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Hunter. Mr. Chuck Monster, the head honcho over at VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Not much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hey there. My name's Hunter Hillegas, and you can find me at RateVegas.com. Um, we got some good stuff today, I think, some good stories. But real quick, I wanted to make a real, an announcement, something I'm excited about. <laughs> Music. The, the, I am announcing that I am going to be releasing a sound effects package. That was a, <laughs> that was a sample. Um, no, I, I'm really happy that uh, I posted something this morning on the blog. That, that but uh, our own Dr. Dave here on from the show, uh, you're going to be um, doing some blogging over on Two Way Hard Three. So um, I just, you know, I'm. I'm really excited about it. I wanted to say welcome. Uh, I know that um, you know Jeff's been writing over there for a bit, and it's it's been really fun to. Uh, I always I always love when I get to read the stories myself. So um, I'm looking forward to that with you, Dave. And uh, I'm I'm hoping it's going to be a good time. Yeah, me too. I'm hoping to contribute something good to your excellent site there. Thank you. Um, it should be a lot of fun. All right. I think the probably the mo- one of the. Listen, I'm the biggest Dave fan in the world, physically but, and emotionally. But and and here's the thing that you're not playing up enough, Hunter, is that you are now going into the carpet business. Yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm actually pretty excited about that. I've been a big fan of Dave's Casino Carpet Gallery since it first debuted. Um, I think it's a great. It was a great idea for a photo gallery, and um, you, Dave, you've done a really good job in doing that. So, yeah, that, that is going to migrate over, uh, and I am looking forward to fielding those phone calls from uh, concerned carpet folks. Ironically, um, you know, Osama bin Carpeting, got, Carpet Guy is one of our regular uh, listeners and readers, and so I do have a friend in the carpet business, and so I can maybe uh, figure out some way to come up with some kind of carpet affiliate program and, uh, <laughs> and uh, get, some, get some money out of it. Um, it's too bad he only sells the cheap stuff. Oh. <laughs> Um, I've still got some updates too, so I'll still be updating and stuff. But it'll be off the dies cast and into the under that big rate Vegas umbrella. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun, and um, I'm a big fan of all of your writing. So I think it's just going to make everything that much better. All right, we got some big stories uh, since we last talked back in like 2007. Um, there's, there's been some interesting stuff. Uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to bury the lead. I'm going to start with the big one. And that is the Sahara. Um, the legendary strip resort announced it's going to be closing in May. Uh, but before we get into the actual closing aspect, um, I wanted to talk about the story itself because that's a story. Um, it's, you know, traditionally these kinds of stories would be broken by mainstream media and every once in a while, uh, and it seems like it's happening more and more. We get um, new, quote unquote, new media. I really don't like that term, but it is what it is. Uh, that are able to um, uncover something ahead of sort of the, the big guys. And in this case, Chuck, 
this was you in Vegas stripping and you guys had this, you know, at least 12 hours, right? Something like that before it was in the newspaper. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I'm sure there are sources involved and whatnot, but it'd just be interesting to, to hear about how that came about and what that was like, if you can share. Well, um, there's only so much that I'm going to share. Um, because I've, I've found that when I share stuff on this podcast, it gets me into trouble. So I'm not going to, I can't really go into it, unfortunately. Uh, but I've known for about three or four weeks beforehand that it was going to happen. Uh, the first, the first post that I did, uh, about the shifting sands of Sahara, I, I, that's pretty much what predicated that post and did, uh, research to try and fill in the gaps. Uh, I was told it was going to happen, you know, and, uh, you know, I tried to try to do what I could to, to suss it out, you know, and then, you know, it, it happened. So well, the thing is, the thing is about the mainstream media and this isn't a slight on them, but the fact is, is that journalists, Nowadays, really rely on press releases and comments and announcements. They don't really do investigative work at all. They, you know, they can fight. You know, it seems like a big thing who posted it first. But the fact of the matter is, is that they all got word about it when the press release came out. You know, and just because somebody reads that press release and writes their story and gets it posted onto the newspaper website first doesn't mean that they have a scoop. It doesn't mean anything, you know. And and this is more about the 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 sorry state of of newspapers in general, how they can't really afford to have investigative reporters and people really out there flushing and and sifting and looking underneath things. And that's what you know ferrets like us do. So I think as time goes forward and they become more press release bots, which is pretty much how almost every uh, – a majority of the gaming world stories are, you know, folks like us are going to be pushing these things way, 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 way ahead of time. And, you know, it's to the point now we're like six months ahead with a lot of the things that we post before they catch up in the newspaper. And then everybody's like, oh, you guys were right. Well, you know, we've been telling you for six months that these things were going to happen. So – it's funny. I definitely do sometimes see sort of um, stories along a similar angle that have already been covered in, in other places. But you're right. Uh, they are um, very strained in terms of their, their budgets. I mean, there are, I, think, I think there are some good gaming reporters in Las Vegas still, but uh, clearly there's not a lot of money to throw around to really deep dive on this stuff. Um, at least maybe not. I mean, I'm sure, Jeff, you know, you have, I would assume you have a perspective on this. Um, You know, I'm going to disagree. I don't think it's a money problem. I mean, certainly having more reporters probably increases the chance that a mainstream media outlet um, can get that story first. But um, I think that the the dollars being spent on gaming coverage have not really changed, you know, for quite some time. Uh, And, I mean, that could change, uh, but um, for right now it has not. I think the big problem is that... um, you know, gaming reporters need to, if you want to get stories like that, um, you obviously cannot wait for press releases. Um, you're not going to get every story by talking to a good circle of sources, but you have to talk to industry executives. You have to talk to competitors of, 
you know, pro, casino executives and their, you know, whether, whether whatever department they're in, or even if they're at the top, um, you know, they're usually pretty willing to share any bad news about their competitors. Um, and other folks are as well, um, always on the record, whether it's gaming regulators or other people who'd be in a position to know, union officials and the like. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to some of the casinos that um, announced closures when I was a reporter on the beat, um, Binion's Horseshoe um, and uh, the ca- uh, the Castaways, the former showboat, um, and, uh, you know, there were the Desert Inn um, when Wynn changed his mind and decided to close that. Um, I broke all of those stories. And, uh, um, you know, the Desert Inn, I found out because the NAACP director told me that Wynn told him there was no use negotiating some kind of a concession deal with the NAACP because he was closing the hotel. And that was not public knowledge. So, I mean, I got a pretty lucky scoop there. That was not something that, you know, I was necessarily trying to find out about because I, you know, it caught everybody by surprise. Horseshoes, Horseshoe and Castaways, I knew those properties were in trouble, and I had been following for about a year writing, you know, story after story about how crappily they were being run and how badly they did, and developed a source network where people gave me a heads up in advance, hey, this place is going to be closing any day now. So I had a series of stories that broke the, the imminent closure. And so what Chuck did, and I don't know, you know, what executive with knowledge or whatever, whoever he talked to, and that's something in the business that we, you know, don't really try and figure out how people get stories. But um, what what amazed me is how long it took from Chuck, Chuck breaking that story to mainstream media getting the press release. I mean, if I it was at least twelve hours, is that right, Chuck? It was about like a twelve hour lead, if not more. Yeah, than that. I th- I think I posted at about six p.m. our time. And it was like early the next morning, was, like seven or something. Yeah, it was. I think it was like ten o'clock where it broke the press release. Oh, that's, see, that's that's so lame because. Any casino reporters worth their salt should be checking certainly Chuck's site, Hunter's site, Steve Freese's site. I mean, how long does it take to do that? You know, a couple times a day, whip through them. I mean, I did it when I was, you know, editing. I continue to do that. Maybe not every single day, but those, those news organizations have several people, editors and gaming reporters. So I, I thought that was a pretty, uh, Sorry performance on their part. Um, kudos to Chuck. Chuck did a great job. Mainstream media, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, brought up the rear in that case. And uh, too bad for them. Good job, Chuck. Yeah. Thanks. Good job. Well, let's move on to the story itself because um, it, it's pretty interesting. I mean, we're talking about a strip casino. I think it's the sixth property to open on the strip is closing. And they're closing because uh, it's... Uh, not, they're not financially viable. Um, that, that's a you know, that's a big story. Uh, clearly, you know, Jeff, you cited a couple of examples of properties uh, in other parts of town that have closed due to financial problems, mismanagement, etc. Uh, and of course, there's a, a large number of properties that have been closed um, intentionally, it's either to make way for new development or uh, or other reasons. But this is this is interesting. I mean. Clearly, I don't think anyone 
looked at the Sahara and said, wow, they must be doing great down there. I, I, I haven't stayed there recently, but I'm assuming that they're 100% occupancy all, all week long. Um, no, I, I don't think anyone uh, would have said that. But still, it's, it's you know, the gambling business, uh, none, of these, all these, none of these games are positive expectation games. I mean, the numbers work. Uh, in their favor, and they still can't afford to make this to make this thing happen. And so it's it's pretty interesting that um, they'd rather close and uh, somehow deal with their with their debt load. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if they if they uh, <clears throat> have to renegotiate that or what. But um, it's a pretty big pretty big story. Um, Dave, historically, any parallels that you can think of that would that would match uh, match this one? Well, if I want to get all boring and go in deep into history, probably the closest parallel is of Royal Nevada back in 1957, <laughs> which was the first casino to close, and it never reopened. It ended up being kind of absorbed by the, the stardust. You know? So really, having these things close and not either be bought by someone else... You know, in the 50s, a lot of Vegas casinos would kind of semi-lose their license. They'd be run as a hotel for a couple months, then reopen as a casino. The Dunes did that. Uh, I think the Hacienda might have done that. No, the Hacienda never did that. The Hacienda ended up buying uh, someone. I think the Sahara, maybe. I don't know. It's all blurring together now. But you know, it was kind of coming back then, but certainly now when there's such major operations and people have so much money tied up in them, usually if they're... If anybody thinks they're viable, somebody will step in and buy it or lease it or do something. So it's pretty unprecedented in recent history. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it's, a big, it's a big deal. Jeff, um, any reaction? I mean, when you, when you saw this story, is this something that you, uh, you know, were expecting to see or were you surprised? Well, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I, from the time they announced, Nazarian announced his deal, um, I think I've been writing and saying on these podcasts that, you know, it was it was ridiculous to talk about throwing, you know, half a billion or more dollars into renovating that property. Um, and, um, I mean, there's a human element to this story that makes it sad. People who, you know, you'll, there are amazingly people who still like to come to the Sahara. And, you know, obviously there's workers who probably would like to keep working a little longer or, you know, there's younger workers who are, are without a job. So there's a human element um, that's sad for the people involved. Um, you know, the place is, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, pretty much a dump. It's a shithole. It is. And there's, um, you know, they've already closed two towers, which, as far as I can tell, I don't know that the mainstream media ever wrote about the fact that the Sahara had gone from two towers to, from three towers to one. It's, if I'm correct, um, but they had already closed two, um, closing the whole hotel and the casino, the entire property. Um, so it won't have as big of an impact on capacity. You know, theoretically, that should be a big plus for the market, but closing two towers has not had an appreciable inc- impact on, uh, on you know, the, the capacity glut in terms of rooms. Um, casino capacity, it's pretty insignificant. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that, um, it's probably a good thing. Um, you know, Nazarian can talk all he wants about how, oh, you know, he still has plans for the property. I got to think it's worth less than he paid for it. I got to think he's going to have trouble paying his debt on the property. 
um, you know, if land prices go back up, maybe he can figure something out. But I bet he loses the property. That's that's my personal opinion. Um, yeah, he'll deal. He'll do club deals with, you know, MGM Resorts. Um, but you know, it's just you know, as far as I, I I can tell, I would be surprised if somebody wanted to buy it and operate it. So I think you know it's probably an implosion candidate for someone who whenever the time is right for people to start redeveloping the strip and we may be some time away right. um it'll be another another place for that but you know sahara hasn't been a meaningful property a place that really mattered for quite some time um it's too bad but um the tree needs to be pruned a little bit and uh this certainly certainly is low hanging fruit. It's, I'm surprised. I'm sorry. Let me jump in here. I was surprised Jeff brought this up. The uh, the SBE Bellagio club deal thing did not that the the media did not see that as blood in the water. You know, how do you when do you see a, a owner of another casino making a club deal? You know, with somebody else instead of investing in their own property, it's it's anti competitive with themselves. Yeah. Right. yeah, that that should have definitely raised some red flags for people there, you know. And I, I have no idea why it didn't. It's it's interesting, I think, to compare the Sahara with the Tropicana. Clearly, the Tropicana is in a far better location. Um, but when you talk about properties that a few years a few years back, you know, neither one was, I think, really considered uh, to be much of a powerhouse. Uh, since then, the Sahara's fortunes have declined, and the Trops seem to have risen at least a bit. I mean, it still remains to be seen how successful they'll be. Um, well, if Nazarian wanted to put 180 180 million dollars, you know, he could have he could have squeezed a few years of life out of the property. Um, the if if Bill Young had kept and Columbia Sussex had kept the property, and they didn't stick any more in any more money in. He'd be having to think about closing that property as well. Uh, you know, it the the the, the era of a, of a of a dilapidated property like the Sahara is is coming to an end. Um, but you're right, Tropicana uh, just a couple of years ago was very similar to the Sahara. Um, you know, and one you know one place got money, one place did not. I'm anticipating a little bit something that's going to be in Vegas 7 next week. It's a really short little piece, but uh, where I'm talking, it's almost eerie. I'm talking about like that, exactly the same thing, Trop versus Sahara. But I think location also has a lot to do with it. You know, the Tropicana has that great location where there's a lot of stuff going on there, and they can definitely pull some traffic from people maybe attending conventions at some of the bigger properties around it who don't don't want to pay those rates and people who just want to be in that corner you know the sahara's real draw was we're on the strip technically in the strip and not near anything if you maybe don't know too much about vegas or don't really care where you are and want a really cheap room you can stay here so i think they're competing more with the Sahara with the stratosphere in downtown right. as opposed to the major strip casinos. But, you know, Tropicana, because their location is right in it. It's, it's funny. Um, Steve Fries, I think it was like his sister-in-law or somebody had booked a trip to Vegas and through one of the major travel sites and their room, I can't remember what property, it was like maybe Monte Carlo or something. And they were overbooked. And so the, 
The site sent out an email saying, like, oh, we've put you at the Sahara, which is a comparable four-star property. <laughs> I was like, yeah, probably not. I think I'd rather be at the Monte Carlo. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Bill Bennett because Bill Bennett um, owned Sahara after uh, a very long career in, in gaming. I just think it's interesting in that perspective because – you know, he went through, along with his partner at Circus Circus, the ups and downs of a market and were able to be extremely successful even in a time, you know, late 70s, early 80s, when the town wasn't really uh, firing on all cylinders. They still managed to make money. Um, I'm, and this is a total hypothetical, but I, as this has happened, I wondered if Bill Bennett, uh, he passed away, but if he was still alive, do you think that this is inevitable or would he uh, maybe have taken some kind of action that would have allowed the place to survive. I don't think he would have put much money into the place, but I think it's worth saying that I think recent, you know, the economy being what it has for the past three years has kind of vindicated Bill Bennett. In the late 80s, he, Circus Circus, was the most profitable casino company in the entire world based on what they were doing, which was bringing masses of people in here. It really was what people were trying to emulate up until the Mirage opened. You know, naturally in the 90s, there was a lot, there was that big boom at the high end. But people lost sight of the fact that there's a lot more people with a little bit of money to spend than people who have a lot of money to spend. So I think in one sense, kind of he'd be seeing everybody else coming around to his way of thinking with discounted rooms and stuff like that. But from what I know of the way he operated, I don't think he would have put a lot of money into renovations. Yeah. Well, I think... You, when you look at you know Bennett's tenure, he took over the place. I think he spent a little south of two hundred million dollars to buy the Sahara. He did pump a little bit of money in there at first, money that he had taken out of his separation from uh, Circus, and he spent some money. He kept spending a little money, but the Sahara benefited for most of the last decade from the room rate surge. So. You know, the Sahara was getting, I mean, even though it was one of the crappiest places on the Strip, it's still getting, you know, much better rates than even medium properties get now. But with the addition of all those properties at the at the top and the capacity glut that pushed the medium properties, the Luxors, the Monte Carlos, the Treasure Islands, um, most of uh, Caesar's portfolio of properties, the, the Rio and others, that pushed them down um, that made that made the Sahara, the Tropicana, the um, you know even you know Imperial Palace, Circus Circus, those kinds of place places made them seem even worse. Um, and then you have the problem, you know, Bennett dies. Um, his his estate certainly isn't going to plug any more money into it. Then you get Nazarian who comes in, and he obviously doesn't have the ability to raise the money to invest in the property and the economy's so bad. No one's going to loan him money to do it. So, um, you know, I think that Bill Bennett, had he been alive, um, you know, I don't know if he would have spent much money in a down economy like this, but when he was alive, he, he kept the property competitive with, you know, the Riz and Circus and Tropicana and the other like properties. The problem is that under Nazarian, the property, you know, sunk below those. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't good enough place to keep, you know, to be worth keeping open. Well, it, it's about, I think, two months from today, or almost, give or take a day, that um, they're going to close the place down. I guess could put a big fence around it and uh, turn the lights off. Um, 
I'm not sure how much more of the story there will be to cover, but uh, if something does happen, of course, we'll talk about it. I think it's a pretty interesting story. Um, anything else in the Sahara before we move on? Anybody? Yeah, let's play. Let's play a little uh, a little crystal ball here. You know, real quick. What what is what do people think is going to happen to this thing? Uh, Jim Murray leaves MGM Mirage uh, together with ex uh, ex U.S. Senator John Ensign decides to form a casino company, Sahara Inc., and they take over that end of the strip. Sold. No takers. <laughs> no, I, I think I think it. Uh, you know, sits dormant um, for a while till somebody buys the property and implodes it, you know, five to 12 years from now. So, yeah. I th- go ahead, Dave. I think it's El Rancho Vegas 2.0. Yeah. It kind of molders along for a couple of years, then they end up leveling it, and then people forget why there's a street named Sahara in Vegas for a while, then hopefully it comes back. They need a huge marquee coming soon, Countryland USA. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the El Rancho Vegas with a fire or the yeah. El Rancho with an implosion? The El Rancho Vegas with the fire. Ah, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, it, yeah, it's a sad story. Um, hopefully those folks that uh, are going to be losing their jobs will either be able to retire or find another place to go. Um, I want to move up the street a little bit. Uh, to uh, win Las Vegas. Um, Marilyn Wynn Spiegel is the new president of Wynn and Encore. Um, Dave, you did an interview with her recently that uh, was the basis of a Vegas 7 story that you also released as a podcast on the uh, through the UNLV um, program. Can you, real quick, talk a little bit about that interview, what that process was like, any general impressions of her? Yeah, I've been trying to get this interview since about January, and you know, I was just very persistent about it, and because I think it's an interesting story, obviously that people want to hear, and I think it's something that impacts where one of the top properties in the city is heading. So, finally, we were able to get our schedule straight, and we scheduled it, and it got to sit down in her office, and she was very convincing. You know, I got very, she very much was convincing. When she talked about her commitment to luxury, when she talked about how it was her husband's favorite property, when she didn't work there, I got the feeling that she had already spent a lot of time at Wynn, you know, and certainly as much as a lot of other people in the business. So it was a, it was a pretty interesting experience, you know. Obviously, what she's talking about, she, she did mention a lot of things that sound like cost-cutting, but she was very careful to say – they're not cost-cutting and went out of her way to say that with, with Steve, the problem isn't spending too much money. It's not being fresh enough, which I think is kind of the interesting thing because is it better to have the best resort in Las Vegas or the freshest resort in Las Vegas, you know, which I think hmm. is kind of a you know, philosophical question they've got to answer. You know, if you've got Alex, do you need to change it up just to stay fresh? You know, are people really not going to go to Alex because, well, that's been here for five years? You know, who wants to go there? I think it's it's obviously there have been some controversial changes. You just alluded to Alex, which was closed, um, you know, fairly recently, and, and we learned later that that was that origi- idea originated with her that she took it to Steve, and um, and he agreed. And, you know, many people have pointed to that, myself included, as an example of kind of a WTF moment. Um, you know, like, what are, what are these guys doing? Uh, I will say that 
going into the interview, before I listened to it, I, my opinion, not knowing very much about her, other than the fact that she had worked at Harris for a long time in various positions, uh, my opinion of her, I think, changed a little bit. I, I got it improved. Um, she sounded, she sounded, and if anybody hasn't listened to the interview, they should. I'll, I'll uh, put a link in the um, show notes. Uh, it, my opinion improved in as much as she sounds very intelligent. She sounds like some of the things she described sounded crazy to me. Now, granted, I've, I've never run a, uh, you know. Uh, 8,000 million quadrillion billion dollar hotel business, but you know she describes a situation where each department would maintain their own staff of analysts and maybe their own call centers. It does seem like there's a fair amount of um, overlap there just in terms of efficiency. Um, but Chuck, you know, you posted a comment on your own website after this came up, and you, you said that Reading between the lines scares me. She makes broad and mistaken generalization that America stays so veered away from gourmet dining. Now, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, but does your concern go beyond that food decision into other areas, or, or is it just that Alex thing that's bothering you? Well, I think the way with which she made that in the discussion with Dave, the way she made that generalization – uh, it was not supported by evidence, and it's a, it's a you know it really was a gut kind of opinion thing, and she tried to back it up with gut opinion. You know, there there is no uh, evidence to support that the tastes of people are moving away from gourmet dining. I think the the evidence goes the opposite way. Uh, you just see the, the 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 rise of foodieism, which didn't exist, you know, even as a, a word in, in general usage five years ago, you know, barely. But people are just foodies. Everybody's a foodie almost to a degree, and people want to try different things, different things, and that includes going to a place like Alex. You know, ten years ago, I never would have thought about going to a place like Alex, but now I do because I've evolved as. You know, my, my tastes have evolved as I've grown up, you know, mm. and I think this is true with everybody with the onslaught of information and, you know, 48 channels of food cooking on TV, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, I think, I think it, it, it was scary the way she made that broad generalization. You know, she's saying that, you know, high end, four star, five star, six star, eight star, you know, where they put a, put your your uh, your purse on a little pedestal underneath the table service thing is a bad idea. You know, maybe they should dial it back a little bit. You know, maybe that's making it a little more casual, a little less formal. But to say that that people's tastes in in uh, exciting and the the pinnacle of culinary uh, expression is going away is is completely absolutely utterly wrong. Yeah, I, I, and and respectfully, Chuck, I would disagree there. I would say, you know, she's certainly not talking about bringing in an Applebee's or a Chili's. Um, you know, she this is gourmet can mean you know when she talks about gourmet. I mean, certainly when you know, and I think most people would look at um, Okada and Wing Lei and you know SW and you know a range of other you know steakhouses and you know, seafood places, Bartolotta and Bartolotta and, you know, those kind of places, they are, 
they are considered gourmet restaurants by the wide majority of the people you called foodies. I think there is a certain style of continental cuisine that Alex exemplified. You know, there's a couple of those places over at MGM and Caesars that have, um, you know, equivalent kinds of kinds of places that are highly rated by Michelin guides. The dining experience takes a few hours. Um, the checks might, you know, run a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or more um, than the other places, depending upon the choice of wines. Um, and I think that when she talked about um, she it was really more of a time choice. Not that people don't appreciate good food. I think people who come to Las Vegas um, maybe, um, and and there are clearly people who do that in Vegas. Um, but I think I, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt there. I think I found her um, in Dave's interview to be highly intelligent, and that the couple things that we should we should realize about that. First of all. Steve Wynn has a pretty good record of attracting great talent. Um, and I think based on, you know, Steve's judgment, based on what I know of her so far, and, um, you know, mainly through um, Dr. Dave's interview, um, I, you know, she seems pretty darn um, on the ball to me. Um, secondly, um, I think that there is an impression that a lot of people have, probably mistakenly, that everyone who works for, the former Harris now Caesars is some kind of a Gary Loveman, you know, automaton who um, thinks like Gary is, you know, you know, only marketing oriented is, you know, not really customer service at the extreme high end driven. Um, I, you know, I think that she's going to prove her versatility and her ability to adapt outside of that environment. Um, and Steve Wynn recognized that ability in her to do so. And, you know, I, I think certainly she she deserves a chance. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of when wins hiring her, um, I'm you know I certainly would give him the benefit of the doubt and her the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, what she had to say made did make sense to me. For people who loved Alex, you know, that's too bad. But I bet, and this is what I said when we first talked about Alex Alex closing. You know, people had all kinds of, you know, intrigue that they were speculating on about why that happened. And I thought that they just, you know, they had a way that they thought they could make, you know, make more money, make the product more, make the property more appealing to their customers. And, you know, clearly that's what she thinks. And, and, and we all shouldn't delude ourselves. You know, Steve said during his conference call, oh, she came to me with this idea and, you know, well, you can be sure that if Steve didn't want to do it, he wouldn't have done it. You know, he's not, you know, there is no one in this company who, like, tells Steve Wynn, you know, hey, Wynn, you're wrong, do it my way. I mean, nobody is doing that. He had to believe in what she said, and we'll have to see what happens. I think I think, I think it, it kind of spills over into an, an interesting discussion as far as what's the role of a person in that job as far as president. president. Yeah, I mean, especially in an, in an organization like Wynn's organization where he he definitely has cast himself as sort of the creative visionary behind his brand and his products. Um, is her job to be a cost cutter, operational expert, a train scheduler, or is her job to 
be coming up with new concepts and ideas for restaurants, for um, having a having a hand in the creative side of things. Because I think this actually again goes back to that discussion and. I'll link this too because there were some good comments back and forth, I think, on the Vegas Tripping Post about this interview. Um, where I, I think, depending on how you look at it, you either see her as a smart, savvy businesswoman or a very scary change in maybe your favorite hotel. There is no scary change. She is, she, her job is to do both try and keep expenses low while keeping quality high, keep things, you know, um, fresh and interesting and the best. Um, so she, you know, her job is to do all that, but in this company, it's all collegial. It's not like MGM resorts where they actually give their property presidents property autonomy. They don't need to go up to Jim Murren or Bobby Baldwin and say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this? I mean, there may be some give and take, but their property presidents have much more autonomy at when, it is, and I've said this before, in the best way, it is a collegial cult. They all, they work together. You know, Steve, you know, Steve Wynn and Mark Shore and, and you know, Linda Chen and, um, you know, the, the CFO and, and um, you know, Marilyn Wynn Spiegel. Everybody is working together all, you know, with the understanding that Steve Wynn makes the ultimate call. But, um, you know, her job is to do the best she can to boost revenue, keep expenses down, and make sure that there's no better property on the strip. And, you know, I mean, but, but she doesn't do it on her own. She does it as part of that group. I tried to kind of get at this with her because she spent some time as the VP of corporate HR for Harris, also spent time running properties, and she really likes – running the properties. She talked about when she had the three Harris properties, she was driving around her little little yellow car up and down the strip and was out on the floor on casinos every day. And I asked her, how important is that to get out there? And she said it was very important because she said, if she's not out there on the floor seeing how guests are treated, she doesn't really know how well what she's trying to do is taking effect. And she spoke very convincingly of her job being to set the tone and to communicate a message for what they stand for and to get people to buy in to what she was saying. You know, it wasn't, I'm going to force you to do this and I'm going to make sure everything happens this way. It was, I want to inspire people to buy in to, to what I'm saying, what I'm thinking. So from that, I think, you know, if she's going to be doing that at win and walking the floor and being out there, if the guests don't like what happens, she'll definitely find out about it. I think it's funny. I sometimes, when I get an opportunity to talk to gaming executives, I love to ask that question, which is, how much time do you spend in your office versus on the casino floor? And I have found a, a direct correlation. Um, the ones that I seem to respect more and get a better vibe from are the ones that say they spend a lot of time on the floor. And I've never spoken with some of the executives that don't leave their offices, but I seem to have somewhat less respect for them in terms of their operational abilities. I don't know. I think it's great that she'd be out there walking around and, and doing that kind of thing. Um, before we move off of her, Chuck, any more, any other comments? No, I think you guys have got it covered. You know, I thought the whole, I found her to be incredibly intelligent. Uh, Jeff is absolutely right. And, uh, I want to make sure that, uh, Everybody understands that my comments about this were primarily about the Alex thing, 
uh, you know, and I just don't want her to apply that degree of uh, kind of misconception towards a lot of other things as well. You know, what they do with their business is their business. It's really not mine. So, and and, and real quick, Chuck, I and and I think I'm glad you said that. I think that I should also say that for people who leave a company like Harris, um, a very numbers oriented, technology oriented marketing-oriented company that doesn't really have a lot other than Caesars that's competing at the top end of the market. Um, think about how liberating it is. Everybody wants to focus on, oh, they're bringing this crazy numbers focus that's going to dilute the quality of win. But on the other hand, think about how liberating it is for somebody who's been operating in that kind of tight-fisted, green, green eye-shade environment to be able to come to a property like Wynn, where the focus is first and foremost on quality. And so I think for people who have her background, yes, it helps her, you know, take a, a sharp analytical look at expenses and revenues. But it also is, has got to be liberating to get that chance to try and do something the best. And, uh, you know, I thought that that's what, that's what really came through for me in Dave's interview. I thought he did a really good job of letting her talk about what a great, you know, sort of career enhancement this is for her growth as a, uh, as one of the city's top casino executives. Well, she, she, yeah. she did say, you don't know how good you are until you go out and try to do, you know, something bigger, better, harder. I mean, that was sort of, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically, I think, what she, and I, yeah, I agree. I think that's, she gets to, she, she, now she gets to flex her muscles and see how good she is at her job. Yeah, which is a pretty big change after working in the same place for 22 years. You know, I think there's a couple of, as she was talking about the Alex closing, a couple of things didn't totally add up for me. You know, for example, she kind of drew a straight line from the fact that having, Meals in the convention area, you know, for the weddings was cost prohibitive. So the solution was to close Alex and use that as, yeah. you know, an exhibit as space for that. So that didn't really seem to add up to me. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's like, well, then why don't you just lower the costs? You know, <laughs> right. Lower the fixed costs. You could spend, you know, two, three hundred grand to dress up one of the banquet, banquet rooms to make it nice for weddings. You know, you don't necessarily have to put it in this space. So I found that to be a little bit of, of a strange reasoning. Another thing, kind of my evidence that the American tastes have not changed that much is that certainly if there wasn't this demand for this kind of dining experience, Caesars Entertainment would not be still carrying Guy Savoie, you know, let alone MGM with Joel Rubichon, you know. So I think there's still somebody still eating there. Or their fancy new seafood tower. Yes. <laughs> yeah. the seafood Tower. Let's, since you mentioned that, let's talk about that real fast. Um, I, don't, I don't know how much there is to talk about, but uh, Caesars um, Entertainment announced that they will be rebranding one of the towers at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas as the Nobu Tower. Uh, Nobu is a famous set of um, you know, sushi, I guess Japanese sushi restaurants. Um, so the, the tower, the renovations are going to include a uh, Nobu restaurant, a um, new separate check-in area for guests at the Nobu Tower. Um, now I don't know. This is this is this seemed like it came out of left field to me. Um, a, what does Caesar's Palace have to do with sushi? 
Um, um, you know, B, you know, B they're, 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 the tower they're, they're choosing was, I think, built in like 1970-ish, something like that. So it's one of the older parts of the building. Um, and as such, the rooms are small, especially compared to uh, modern standards, probably really small bathrooms. Um, so it's not what you... Just like Japan. Yeah, I guess things are starting to add up. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Is, 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 some people some were. People I, I wrote a post saying this is kind of weird, but okay, whatever. Okay, um, and some and people some said, people well, said, well, I'm, I'm, we're, we're assuming that, that the Nobu the folks are going to be paying for this. I didn't. I didn't get that impression. In the. I don't. I don't think so. But I think Dr. Dave and I. I think we were both pretty supportive. I think it's a. It's really not a. You know, it's not. It's a no. It's. It's sort of a win-win all around. I mean. What for customers for for Caesars they're refreshing refreshing the property, you know yeah, what's yeah. not to like? It's just a I little just weird. See, My, I mean, is it still important to anyone that that property maintains a strict adherence to 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 Rome? No, I mean, no. you know, there's there's I, I I mean it it certainly doesn't to me. Most properties have moved slightly away. I sort of like the Roman stuff there, but you know, this is a very small tower. What is it? 180 rooms. I mean, this is insignificant in terms of a 4,000 room plus property, but at least some of the crappiest rooms in the joint will be better. So, you know, good. Now, now the thing that I, you know, I guess it's good. They're trying something new and putting construction people to work. So that's good. You know, I could see it working. If maybe you have Ian Schrager come in, and say I'm going to reinvent the boutique hotel in Vegas and compete with my former protege John Unwin down the street. <laughs> you know, if you if you have that kind of that kind of making over the tower thing, uh, Nobu just doesn't reach out and grab me as a huge theme that would draw people. It's not a hospitality know? brand; it's a restaurant. It's not. And if you're going, you know, let's say you know, if they're doing this because we want to have more cachet in the Asian market, then you know, right now China is where the Asian market is. Not not Japan necessarily. So the, the, Sizzler, the Sizzler Tower, Tower, I guess, is coming. Yeah, next. you know. So I don't know why you would try to theme it after uh, you know a Chinese brand or something like that. So it's kind of curious. You know, it's good that it, I think this is a trend that we've seen building for a while, where casino companies are seeking partners and kind of tying into this broader network. You know, we see that with the loyalty program deals that. Uh, Las Vegas Sands has with Intercontinental that uh, Cosmopolitan has that MGM has. You know, we see it with Wynn hooking up with Pinnacle, and I think this is just another example of that. Whether it's a good way to do it or a bad way, I guess only time will tell. I don't disagree with you, Jeff. As far as um, you know, redoing rooms, good thing. New restaurant, potentially good thing. It just, I just think the brand matchup seems very incongruous to me. Um, just in terms, of, it, it, that's the part that seemed like it was out of left field to me. Um, I sort of parrot what Dave was just saying. It would have made more sense to me if it was an established hotel operator that came in and said they wanted to redo part of the thing and operate it that way. Well, we'll see. I mean, I think Nobu has a very good, uh, you know, uh, reputation in New York City. Um, it certainly has a decent reputation here in Las Vegas. Um, the ownership group there, uh, um, highly regarded. It, it won't help them if it won't hurt them to have, uh, Robert De Niro hanging around every now and then. Um, as far as you know, picking a, a Japanese theme as opposed to the uh, you know obviously Chinese gamblers are much more important in Las Vegas. But you know, it, it really wasn't too long ago uh, when you had 
Um, you know, a lot of Japanese whales playing in Las Vegas, they've certainly been largely supplanted by Chinese whales, but there are Japanese players, and I think the American public um, has an affinity, certainly the high-end, trendy young people um, have an affinity for, uh, you know, um, you know, Japanese design, Japanese, Japanese cuisine, um, you know, and, and we're only talking about 180 rooms. I mean, this is not like they said, let's take the uh, Forum Tower and the Augustus Tower and, uh, you know, and, and make it, you know, a Brazilian beef restaurant theme. And this is why, you know, and, this, I, and this is why they hired David Rockwell to uh, design the place because he's so well known with his Japanese design. Well, I mean, you know, probably it's going to be just sort of clean. And hey, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do uh, based on what uh, what um, you know. Let's hope they don't um, try and take an Ian Schrager approach if he's going to use John Unwin's uh, um, hotel hotel room assignment techniques and uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, because because people who come to check in on Thursday will be uh, getting their rooms on Saturday morning. Be cosmopolified, yes. Exactly. Um, quickly, I want to try and squeeze in one, little, one last little story, um, which I think it will only take a minute, but it's this progression of this lawsuit against Las Vegas Sands, their former employee. Uh, sued them. I, th- I think his suit is basically about wrongful termination, uh, but I think now they're actually throwing in some defamation also. Um, the interesting thing to me is this has started to progress this week. The, the company, Las Vegas Sands, had made a big deal in saying that Jacobs, who's the uh, former employee, the former CEO of, uh, of the Macau operation, they made a big deal out of saying that this didn't belong in this jurisdiction because he wasn't an LVS employee. But supposedly, he showed up in court with a W-2 from LVS, implying that indeed he was an LVS employee, um, which I think makes this interesting. I mean, my not being an expert in the uh, Chinese legal system, my guess is it's worse for Sands if it's here and better for him uh, versus the other way around. Um, I don't, I don't know. Anybody, Anybody disagree? This doesn't sound like this is going away. That they're going to have to litigate this all the way through. You're right. I'm not, I'm not totally. Oh, you go ahead. No, go ahead, Dave. All right. I'm not totally sure about the legality of all this, but the Sun story that Steve Green wrote has this incredible picture of Sheldon Adelson, where he's gesturing with his finger and. It's juxtaposed with that sans kind of flower sunburst thing, and it looks almost like right, it looks almost like like a Byzantine icon, like an early yes. icon. like it's a rendering of the Temptation of Saint Anthony or something. It's, it's I, I, could, I thought it was a joke, but that's just the angle they got. It's incredible because it looks like he's creating the light of the word through his hand. So I don't know. So maybe if he's got that kind of power, I can't think, you know, but that he's going to win the suit. You know, if you it, one thing that would be interesting to do is to look at um, Adelson's, uh, you know, financial status as he as his uh, as he ebbs and uh, flows as 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 you, you didn't see a lot of lawsuits filed by Sheldon Adelson in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, <laughs> um, um, and uh, you know. Now that he's back up into the top twenty in the, you know, Forbes rich, rich you know, list of richest billionaires, um, you know, he's going to throw his loss, his lawsuit money around. Um, not that I know anything about that, uh, but um, 
and uh, and I, I was very pleased to see that they actually mentioned uh, um, my particular lawsuit in the in the court hearing um, in terms of uh, Adelson's uh, um, filing of defamation lawsuits. But you know, this is this is it, it seems like the judge is inclined to keep it here in Nevada. Um, they probably will appeal to the Nevada Supreme Court. Um, you know, I have no prediction about what they'll do, but if they keep it here in Nevada, um, it probably isn't good for Las Vegas Sands. Um, both sides are uh, very ably represented in court. Don Campbell um, representing Jacobs, a uh, very smart lawyer. Um, Stephen Peake representing, you know, um, Las Vegas Sands, a darn good lawyer. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a, a legal heavyweight battle. And, uh, you know, it'll be uh, interesting to see how it plays out. I-, I tell you what, the documents that Jacobs supposedly has that have not seen the light of day, and I'm sure Campbell and, and Jacobs are saving those for as some kind of leverage to force some kind of a deal. Um, I have a feeling the public would like to see what's in some of those documents. Yeah. Um, and maybe the Chinese government and Macau government would too. So uh, this is something that everybody should be keeping a close eye on. I agree. I agree. These, These cases, cases are great, great because we get all, you know, we get access to all kinds of formerly secret documents that they're, you know, un- unless you've got a, a great leak, then you're never going to see. So, um, you know, it, it, this is, this, it's, I hope this continues on for a long time and much, much blood is spilled because it's very entertaining. Well, remember how great it was when we got to read that letter from the uh, MGM people to uh, Perini for, over the lawsuit where yeah. it was, ah, you know, I'm shocked and dismayed at your failure to do all this. And it's just so funny watching the language kind of become, you know, to like, I'm confused about your response to my letter. Honorable, Honorable sir, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> or before they solved their dispute between George Maloof and... Uh, Oh and man, those, that was the I mean, best. You know, I tell you what, that was the know, best. And, and and it becomes an escalating flamethrower war, and uh, you know, nobody benefits but the media and the public. So good, yeah. <laughs> you, you couldn't even run a lemonade stand. <laughs> All right, we're gonna wrap exactly. it up. We're gonna do uh, our sure bet segment. Um, our sure bets are basically our our opportunity to share with the audience um, something that uh, we think you might enjoy. It can be a product, a service, a place, a thing, a whatever. Um, so uh, we're going to go around the table here and people uh, we can share with you. Um, Jeff, do you got something for us today? You know, this is something I've talked about before. I think a lot of people know about my uh, fascination with parking garages. And uh, today I'm, uh, I'm, I'm watching NCAA basketball with a buddy of mine from uh, Sarasota, Florida. He's staying at Wynn, and so I got to park in one of my favorite parking spots today, the rooftop parking garage. And uh, I think for most people, um, you know, some people like to park at the level where it's the easiest access to the casino. And I've mentioned before, I typically like to park on the roof because my old man memory, um, um, when all else fails, I think I'm probably on the roof. So, but here, the roof at the winds at the wind parking garage, you know, you get really good views. You can check things out from up there. Um, you know, in the baking summer, Probably not the best place to be, but certainly in March, October, there's no better place to park, um, and so that's my uh, that's my sure bet. 
Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time on the top of that parking garage when they were building Encore, leaning over, <laughs> taking pictures over the side of the parking garage. The con- I remember a nice vantage point. The construction workers were looking at me like I was insane, but uh, I got some good photos. Did you get chased by the guy on the golf cart? Uh, the security people kind of look at you a little funny, but, I, you know, they, I never have, I've never had too much trouble with them, actually. Up there. Uh, Chuck, what about you? All right, my my sherbet of the week. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to like it except for me. Um, uh, it is a book by uh, Charles Bukowski called Women. Uh, if you've ever read anything by Bukowski, you probably know that he is just a, 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 a crazy drunk. And uh, this book is uh, it tells the tales of a couple of years of his uh, philandering with women and. His lecherous behavior to the point where he finally breaks down and realizes that he uh, he blows it. So it's uh, it's a pretty fascinating, it's real simple, real easy reading. It's quite amusing. Uh, it's somewhat offensive, but it's it's great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. What's wrong uh, with drunk philandering? That sounds entertaining. There's nothing wrong with it. Just some people, you know, I can't I can't uh, guess what their tastes are. So. So I guess you're going to make us keep waiting, Chuck, for your uh, explanation of your love-hate relationship with the uh, city of Las Vegas. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think um, I'm actually going to write a book about that. It's going to be published Not a by post. Harper Collins. <laughs> we'll be we'll be waiting. Okay, uh, Doctor uh, Dave Schwartz. What about you? Well, I'm going to go with a book too, inspired by Chuck. Um, we had a fellow in last month, Daryl Smith, who did some very interesting writing about the philosophy of poker and gambling. And I decided to reread Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man to try to get some more insights in it. And it's not definitely not about gambling, but there's kind of ideas of gambling and chance kind of woven through there. Some of the action takes place in this brothel slash gambling house called The Golden Day which is, is if I ever got to build a casino from scratch, I think I'd call it the golden day just to be fun. And uh, there's a great line in there where, where Ellison says, what if history was a gambler instead of a, a force in a laboratory experiment, which is just a great idea, you know, that maybe things aren't as orderly as we think they are. So that is, it's, a, it's a really classic of 20th century American literature that I think if you haven't read it, it's worth a read. Awesome. I have you know, this, this is not a sure bet, but... I just have to say, in terms of reading, I'm rereading Dr. Dave's Roll the Bones book right now, um, and I'm, you know, almost at the end of the book. If you do not, if you're a, a gambling industry um, fan and you do not own that book, you have to buy that book. It is a, it's fantastic, and uh, I had read it, I guess what five, whenever it was published, four or five years ago, but uh, rereading it, there's a lot of things that I had forgotten. Fantastic work. Yeah, I totally agree. I've got, I can see my copy uh, sitting over here on the bookshelf. So, yeah, absolutely. And you can get all the information about Dave's book over on his website. Is that right, Dave? Yeah, which is now dgschwartz.com. I am going to talk about the iPad. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone that has ever known anything about me is surprised to learn that um, I, you know, Apple released the second version of the iPad this week. Uh, I had, I was somewhat interested in that uh, release. Um, actually, what, what I want to mention is. 
something that works on the original iPad also, and it's um, GarageBand for iPad. GarageBand is a, a sort of a simple music-making application that Apple has had on the Mac for a long time. Um, they just recently did a version for the iPad, and in my opinion, it's um, the medium that the app was really meant for. It it really shines on the iPad. You can touch these uh, virtual instruments and create some really interesting um, music, and I think it's going to be really fun to see what people come up with. It's it's much more than just a toy. You can do some cool stuff. Now, granted, it's not going to replace your uh, Pro Tools rig for making your next Britney Spears record, but um, it's it's fun for putting some sounds together, uh, doing some simple recordings, and just uh, sort of messing around. It's a, it's a great way to lose a few hours if you have an iPad and you want to and you want to mess around. It's uh, it's five bucks on the um, iTunes App Store. And uh, even if you, even if you're not a musician, actually, I think it appeals more to non-musicians and pseudo musicians than real musicians, um, because uh, it's, I think it's really aimed at folks that maybe don't play an instrument at all or um, aren't aren't uh, you know professionals. There are other tools if you're a, if you're a professional. Anyway, I think it's a lot of fun. They did a great job. It's five bucks. Um, I would recommend checking it out if you're uh, into that kind of thing. Is that only iPad or also iPhone and iPad or iPod Touch? iPad only. Yeah, it it, it makes full use of the uh, of the larger screen, and so it is iPad only. Um, but I just check it out. Um, I'm actually working on composing a new theme song for the sh- for the podcast, but that that will wait for another day. <laughs> Uh, that's it for today. I want to thank you guys for being here. Uh, I'm going to go around the table so you can tell people where they can find you. And Dr. Dave, we'll start with you. Uh, you can find me at Two Way Hard Three, where I'll be contributing. You can also find me at dgschwartz.com, where you can keep track of everything I'm writing everywhere else on the internet and around Vegas. Excellent, uh, Chuck Monster. What about you? You can find me at diascast.com, a domain name I just purchased. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, Jeff Simpson, what about you? Um, besides, uh, besides Two Way Hard Three Hunter's blog, um, I can be found in a, in a window, a window right near the elevator core of Win Las Vegas, looking at uh, the Venetian Palazzo Trump Tower and. Uh, and the mountains to the west. Pretty sweet view. Nice. Are you wearing pants? <laughs> <laughs> as far as you know. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. Um, all right. You people can find me at ratevegas.com. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. <laughs>